a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, not only uh, have I known Paul for a long time, and he's been a good friend uh, over these years, but uh, this is not my first time to preach here. Uh, I was a campus minister for, for RUF for 19 years uh, prior to moving into this new position with RUF. And I, in 1996, I, I started, I moved to Cookville, Tennessee, and my wife and I uh, moved there, and, and we began a new work of Reformed University Fellowship at Tennessee Tech. And back in 1996, um, that, was the, that was the 30th ministry of RUF at the time. And it is amazing to think about how now, not that long of a time after 1996, RUF is now on, on 160 campuses across the country. And, um, and that is in no small part, no, no small measure, uh, to churches like Zion Presbyterian Church. And uh, now I'm the director of advancement, uh, which means I'm a professional fundraiser, which is something I never thought that I would say. Um, but I love this ministry, and it's a privilege to be a part of it in this capacity. And whenever I have a chance to stand in front of a church like Zion Prez um, and just say thank you, because y'all have been with RUF almost since the beginning. And you supported me as a campus minister at Tennessee Tech, helped get that ministry launched, and it's still there today, and providing a fruitful ministry there. The students are being reached with the gospel. The church is being strengthened because of the support of Zion Presbyterian Church. Y'all have been very faithful to this ministry. And so to be able to stand in front of you and say thank you for your years of support um, is it, it, it really is a, a privilege. And so thank you. I really do mean that. And um, the church is growing and being strengthened uh, because of your support of RUF. Um, but I'm here to talk about 2 Corinthians today. And so let's, uh, let's look at that passage now. And there's not much room in our culture for being weak and being needy. And it doesn't matter if you're a minister it doesn't matter if you're a fundraiser. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor, a school teacher. It doesn't matter your profession. You're not allowed to be weak. You better be strong and you better be good. You show up at Zion Presbyterian Church to preach a sermon, you better be good, right? Don't be weak. Our culture doesn't afford you or me that opportunity. That's why a passage like this really does encourage me. Because this is a passage where the Apostle Paul talks about his weaknesses and where he found great strength. And I thought I would start off with this illustration. My dad, I grew up in Mississippi, in a, a little small town, probably seven, 8,000 people. And my dad owned a dry cleaners uh, while I was growing up. And I, I don't know if you, I'll, a lot of you will remember this, but do you remember when you would go 
shopping for clothes right before school started, you know, and you'd get like some new blue jeans. How many of y'all remember when you would go to the store, you know, for me, my parents would drive me to Jackson, Mississippi, and we'd go to the department stores or whatever, and we would get these blue jeans, and they would be as hard as a rock, you know, dark, dark blue, hard as a rock. And I'm telling you, I wouldn't dream of putting those pants on, those jeans on, until my mom had washed those things five or six times, maybe even ten, to get those things softened up, okay? Um, thankfully, uh, pre-washing came in, you know, to, because there were so many children like me who hated those rock-hard blue jeans, and so companies started pre-washing them so that they would soften up before you put them on the shelves, Okay? And uh, my dad owned, owned this dry cleaners. It was a small blue jean manufacturing company in our town. And my dad had a contract with that, um, with that jeans manufacturer to pre-wash the blue jeans. And that was my job all during the summers was I would get these, these you know, newly made blue jeans. And my job was washing them, drying them multiple times, loading them on a truck, taking them back to that blue jean manufacturer. And they would ship them all across Mississippi and, uh, you know, so that people could buy them. And um, actually, this is how the whole stonewashing uh, process evolved. And when I moved to, this is a true story. I don't want don't don't to get too much on a rabbit trail, but when I moved to Cookville, Tennessee, this is really a true story. I became friends with another guy whose dad owned a dry cleaners. And in Cookville, Tennessee, there was a Levi's manufacturing plant. And, um, and they had the same contract, but only had it with Levi's, as opposed to the small-scale thing we were dealing with down in Mississippi. And his father had the foresight. He thought, you know what? This is literally what he did. He was outside of his, uh, of his dry cleaners, grabbed some stones, some rocks off the pavement, went and threw them in the tumbler at his dry cleaners, let them spin around in the dryer so that it scuffed the inside and marked up the inside of the dryer. And that is how stonewashing came about, Okay. And uh, it would scuff up the jeans. It would soften them up. They made millions as opposed to the Teasley family, okay, because they got the patent on that thing. And, um, but look, it, my point with the, the illustration is this. It doesn't matter what it is. Blue jeans, baseball gloves, clothes, sheets, everything's better once they've been broken in. As a kid, I didn't want to use those blue jeans until they had been weakened, until they had been softened to such a way that I was wanting to use them. I think that's, that's the dynamic that is, that's what Paul is trying to say about Christians, is that Christians aren't any good. They're not ready to be used until they've been softened, until they've been weakened, if you will. And he doesn't talk about it in terms of stonewashing or dryers, um, but he talks about it in terms of a thorn. That's what was given to Paul to weaken him, to soften him, so that he would be ready to be used by God. That's the process that he describes for us in this passage. And I don't know if you've ever been discouraged about your life. I have found my place, myself in that position time and time again. Maybe it's because of a character flaw. Maybe it's because of a relational conflict. I don't know what it is that gets you discouraged, but Paul in this passage, he's discouraged and I think one of the best ways to think about Paul's thorn here is think about it as something that represents discouragement for him. Because most of the things in this chapter are 
are bad things that have happened to Paul. The kind of things that when they happen in your life and in my life, we kind of look at God and we're like, what did I do wrong, God? Why are you doing this to me? Where are you, God? Do you even care that this is going on, right? But what Paul wants us to see is that all those moments, those things, are all part of God getting you and I ready to be used by him. And that if you want to be strong, first, you got to be weak. That's the principle right here. Um, his thorn represents discouragement to him. And I don't know about, I was thinking about what is it that, that gets me discouraged and what can get me down. And I just find it interesting that the th- same things that kind of wear me down also wore Paul down. In this passage, the first thing that he mentions is criticism and insults. If you look there, you know, at verse 10, he, he's, he mentions insults there. You know, Paul has planted this church, and he loved these people. and He walked through life with them. I mean, he was their pastor. And these new apostles, these super apostles come in, and they start trying to get the people to side with them as opposed to Paul. And so what they do is they start running Paul down. They start running, they start criticizing him. They start insulting him. They start trying to diminish him. And before you know it, these people that Paul dearly loved and has gone to battle with and has planted churches with, with and has done life with, all of a sudden they begin to turn on him and now they see Paul not as an ally but as competition. And it wears him down just like it would wear, you know, you and I down. The... the these super apostles, you know, they start listing their credentials and they start talking about how great they are. And Paul, if you, if you have your Bibles, if you look at chapter 11, you know, in verses 22 through 24, Paul starts listing his credentials, right? He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. And then he even says, like you can tell, it just is killing Paul that all of a sudden he's talking on this level. He says, now I'm talking like a madman. With far greater, and he says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. You know, he, he goes and on and on, listing these things about him. These people are turning on him, and that can wear you down. It can weaken you. Um, but, you know, as you noticed in that list, it do, it, it, he doesn't just stop with verbal, emotional bullying and that wearing him down, but he all of a sudden shifts into physical hardships, talking about greater labors, imprisonments, countless beatings, often near deaths, five times receiving at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. It's not just verbal, emotional things that can wear you down, but physical things wear you down as well. And you know how this goes. You're just rolling along, doing life, and all of a sudden, you get a bad doctor report. Or somebody in your family gets a bad doctor's report. You know? Physical hurt can discourage you as well. And it can just take the wind right out of you. Um, 
But he even continues, and you know this, it doesn't have to be a really big trial that wears you down, that takes the wind out of you. Often what really wears me down is just the daily grind of life, you know? Um, just all the things that have to get done. Uh, I, I do enjoy running, and I w- but I would not classify myself as this long-distance runner, but I have a friend who shared a story with me who is a long-distance runner, and he was talking about he can go just for miles out on the open road. But he said the first, one of the first times he got on a treadmill that he realized he could only do about half the distance on this treadmill. And, and one of the first times doing this, he got off that treadmill and he was just fur- you know, just really discouraged, really kind of down and angry even. And he's looking at that treadmill, just, you know, he's, he's saying, almost screaming at it. What's the matter with this thing? What's the matter with me? You know, why, why is this so difficult? But what he realized is that, incline, that, that, uh, that treadmill was set at a 5% incline. It was hardly noticeable at all, right? It doesn't have to be much as long as it just keeps coming. Just the customer demands never stop, right? Being a husband, being a father, being a mom, being a spouse, just the demands of the family, right? The grumpy church members that never stop, right? You know, it just keeps coming. It doesn't have to be much pressure as long as it just keeps coming, and that can wear you down as well. The bills, they never stop, right? Um, Just driving down here, my car engine light came on, right? I have two teenage drivers, which means I just got a car out of the shop, okay? And they, it just never stops. Um, so Paul is like you and I in this situation. He's so discouraged now, he's begging God to relieve him, to relieve him. He's begging God for some relief. That's what he's doing in verse 8. Three times I beg God, please make it stop. He's tired of other people. He's tired of himself. He's tired of all the limitations. Maybe he's just tired of it all, okay? I've been there. I've done that. I'll be there again this week probably. Why is, and, and that even helps us understand why Paul is saying this. There, there really is a sense in which Paul is sharing this with you and with me to say, welcome to the Christian life. He's saying what James says to us when he says, look, don't be surprised when you find yourself falling into various trials. There really is a sense in which this is part of the normal Christian life. But why? Why why do these things have to happen? Why do they have to come? And what the Apostle Paul is telling us here, these things happen so that you and I will face our weakness so that we will see our neediness. That's the most important lesson that you and I can learn when we're in the middle of trials, right? To, for you and I to realize we can't do life on our own. You can't do it in your own strength. And I love the way, the, the Bible is so realistic, the, and I love how the Apostle Paul, he doesn't, like, life is painful. Life is hard, Life is is tragic. And I love how Paul doesn't run from that. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't dissociate, right? He doesn't just hide himself in social media and and phones, 
right, to get away from that, but he faces it head on, and that's what he wants us to do as well. You and I have got to face our weakness and our neediness. It's our real condition. It really is who we are. You know, um, there's all kind of debate, and I'm, I'm aware of it, about what this thorn in the flesh was for Paul. I mean, there's all kind of speculation about what it is. What was this thorn? But the truth is, we just don't know exactly what it was. But the important thing about the thorn is not what the thorn is, but why Paul says it came. Why was it put there? He calls it this messenger of Satan, okay? At the beginning of chapter 12, Paul starts talking about this man who's been taken up into heaven and has received this unbelievable vision, right? I mean, it's the mountaintop experience of all mountaintop experiences, right? It is the, I mean, what Paul, what was revealed to Paul, he can't even put into human terms, right? And it, it was amazing, Paul even says. But what the Apostle Paul says is that as amazing as that vision was, as amazing as it was for me to go up into the highest heaven, this reminder of my weakness was more important than that great revelation. This constant reminder of my weakness. It was more important to Paul. It was more important for Paul to realize that he was nothing so that he wouldn't become conceited. It's amazing that Paul says this to me because Paul is saying the greatest thing that's happened in my life was not this amazing supernatural, it was not in the world of the supernatural, but it was in the world of everyday mundane life experience, right? This reminder of my weakness. And if you're like me, I don't want to admit it. I don't want to admit how weak I am, that I need other people or that I need God. And that's why these trials uh, have to come. Um, and we've got to see it because there, there's an unbelievable spiritual dynamic that's at work here. And, and it's this. That when you and I, when we are emptied of any vain sense or hope of strength in and of ourselves when you and I stop thinking that we got it going on it's at that moment that God's power starts to rest on you and flow in you and do things in you and through you that you could never possibly imagine and that's what the Apostle Paul wants us to know Uh, Joni Erickson taught a has a quote where she says that sometimes God permits what he hates so that he can produce what he loves. When you and I are emptied of that, when we are, are humbled in that way, there's an amazing kind of character that starts to flow out of that, right? It, it's what Jesus is talking about when he says that unless a seed dies and falls into the ground, it can't erupt with all of its potential, that's the dynamic that's at work right here. And it's also at that, at that moment 
when you and I have been knocked down to the ground and humbled and, and not so full of ourselves, it's at that moment that God's grace becomes more than just a theory to you and to me. It's at that moment that God's grace becomes really real to you and me. And I can look back at the moments of my life where I've been reduced to nothing, and it's at that point that I'm holding on to God's grace like never before. And that's exactly the place God wants us all the time. And it's the exact place that I'm trying to get out of all the time, right? Because I don't like being in that place. But it's at that moment when I'm reduced to nothing, when there's nothing in my hands that I'm bringing to God or to anybody else, that's when I'm clinging to the cross like everybody else. And it's at that point that where Paul says, when God says, Kevin, my grace is sufficient for you, that means more to me than ever, right? God wants us to know grace and that it is sufficient. Um, there's a, a great quote by Jerry Bridges, and I heard it the first time when I was in college, and it's still changing my life and still transforming me. Where Jerry, this quote, I'll never forget reading it when I was in college. Through RUF, I was reading this book, Transforming Grace, and in um, this line where he says that if you are in Christ Jesus, that there is nothing that you can do to make him love you any more or any less than he already does in Christ. Do you understand what that's saying? Like, if you are in Christ Jesus, if you are united to him, there's nothing that you can do to make him love you any more or any less than he already does. You see, what that's saying is that it is not what we offer to God that he notices. It's not what we offer up to God. It's not what my hands can do that makes God love us. But it's just Jesus. It's just his grace. And we are called to rest in that and in that alone. John Gerstner, the great theologian, says that all, when it comes to being a Christian, all you need is need. And I, I forget who said this. Um, maybe somebody can say it. But, you know, Jesus is not all you need till Jesus is all you need. And that's the point Paul is trying to say God is always trying to get us to. If we could rest in him and in him alone and know that his grace for you, it obscures every other way that he could possibly look at you. To rest in that, to know that that is sufficient. That's all you and I need. And, what ha and think about what happens when you and I start to rest in that. Look at what he says there in verse 9. When we rest in Christ and in him alone, that's when his power starts to rest on you and flow in you and build you up and, and work through you in ways that you and I could never imagine. Paul says that all, this, all these trials, all these, difficult, all these difficulties, he says that, that all of them had to happen so that he would not become conceited. He says that two times in verse 7. What, what he's saying, that it was a severe mercy in his life for these discouragements to come in, Right? And, and that's why he didn't plead the fourth time, right? He actually starts to thank God for the trials, for the struggles, because he realizes when he's aware of his weaknesses, that's actually when he's strong, because that's when God's grace is sufficient, and that's when God's power starts to flow when he's there. I mean, you know this, that the more successful we are, the more vulnerable we are, to becoming full of ourselves, 
and thinking that we've got it going on. It, again, it doesn't, that, can, that happens in ministry, that happens in law, that happens in teaching. It doesn't matter your profession. Success increases our vulnerability to becoming full of ourselves instead of full of God. And what Paul is saying here is, is whatever you do, whatever it is, seek God's strength. Seek him. I, I love what, what all this has done in Paul, as I heard one person say, is that Paul has become very introverted about Paul and extroverted about Jesus. He calls this, at the beginning of the passage, a, he calls this thorn a messenger of Satan. But what God did is he took that and turned Paul into a messenger of grace and a messenger of Jesus. He, had, he became very shy about himself, if you will, very bold about Jesus. And I think that is why the most beautiful people that I've come in contact with in my life are people who walk with a limp, are people with thorns, because they're the people who know they're weak. They know their neediness. They know they need grace. And, and they're the most beautiful people that I know. Um, everybody here, I can look around the room and I can just tell, just simply if it's just age, myself included, Everybody here, I, I just, it's just life. You've all been through major life crises. And, and I wish I could stand up here and tell you, and even in my own life, that, that, that no more are coming. But, but more are coming. And, and it's going to take the wind right out of you. And, and, it's, and it's enough where I look at these situations, and you just think, man, what in the world is going on? God, where are you? What? Do you even want me? What am I supposed to do? God, I can't do this. And that's exactly the point. For us to see how weak we are and to know that we can't do it so that we will reach out to him for grace and know that it is sufficient. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us a glimpse of, of what Paul is talking about here. Help us to see who we are. Help us to see our weaknesses. And, and if, it, if it takes thorns and trials and difficulties, then let them come. Show us our weaknesses so that we can rest in your grace and know that it is sufficient, that it is enough, that you are with us and that you love us. If you did not spare your own son but gave him up for us, you are not about to abandon us in any trial and any difficulty, but you are drawing us close to you so that we will see how sufficient your grace is. Help us to see these things, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.